Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If elected, Keir Starmer, a man, I quote, with nothing between his ears, is going to veer towards the ultra-right, betraying the people he claims to represent. That's according to economist Yanis Varoufakis. How can he be so sure? Well, he's seen it all before. From the ashes of the Greek debt crisis, Syriza, a coalition of the radical left, swept to power with Varoufakis as their finance minister. They did so on a promise to the Greek people. A promise that they would fight the creditors and their conditions for a bailout. But the Prime Minister broke this promise. With trust in the left shattered, Greece is today, in the words of Varoufakis, led by an ultra-right-wing government, supported by fascists in Parliament. Varoufakis' journey with Syriza and beyond is documented in the new series In the Eye of the Storm, the political odyssey of Yanis Varoufakis. In his conversation with Oli, he polemicises Starmer's labour, the West's complicity in genocide in Gaza, and laments how the city of London operates like a mafia, with its capos rewarded by Westminster. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show cast. I'm very glad you are back. On Valentine's Day, no less. Happy Valentine's Day. Well, as long as it's every day. For you? For all of us. Mm -hmm. Love every day. Absolutely. Love every day. 65 days. What a message. That's what we'll take (laughs) away from this. Um, Yanis, for those who didn't see the last interview you did on Mm -hmm. Politics Show... How would you like to describe yourself? Who are you? I am um, an academic economist who completely accidentally, just because uh, capitalism went pear-shaped in 2008, I opened my mouth a few times more than I should, and I ended up in politics. (laughs) So I became the finance minister of the most bankrupt European country, and that gave me some, you know, some... It elevated me from being a second-rate economist to being a first-rate Greek economist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and actually being quite important. Um, your new documentary series, In the Eye of the Storm, The Political Odyssey of Yanis Varoufakis, follows the interlinked journeys of your own life, the Greek economy, the international economy. And I think a lot of viewers will sort of be asking themselves, how did we get here? 
a small correction. It's not my documentary. Go ahead. It's uh, a documentary devised, imagined, executed, implemented, completed by a remarkable young British artist, Raul Martinez, who for some strange reason, you have to ask him about that, uh, decided to center this six-part, four-hour, four-and-a-half-hour documentary on me. Mm. So I'm just a talking head in there, um, responding to his brilliant questions. But he has created a story out of my answers by editing them in a beautiful way, not so much about me, a story about the repercussions of the 2008 financial collapse, which mm. brought about uh, untold misery to people here in Britain, in the, the European Union, in my native Greece, but also shaped the world in a manner which um, has made it unrecognizable to the pre-2008 era. It has paved the way towards uh, an acceleration of the climate catastrophe, of the new Cold War between the United States and China, uh, what's happening now in, you know, in Europe. Effectively, Europe has been subsumed into NATO. Mm. Uh, so that's what this documentary is about. We will come to all of these substantive issues which you mm. have just described, but it's striking to me, and it's for this reason that I want to focus on it for a moment because I think it makes you a little bit uncomfortable to describe it as focusing on yourself. You're very quick to deflect and point, rightly so, to the people that are involved. But I wonder, you, you know, you're clearly someone that people want to listen to, right? Whether it's in the form of this documentary, whether it's in the form of the interviews you do, whether it's in the form of the books that you write. And I'm struck that in our conversations, it's to happen just now, your modesty, and I wonder how it feels to be in the position you are in where people are looking to you for answers. People are looking to you to inform not just what they might think about something, but the very nature of their worldview. And that's quite, a, it's an incredibly unique place to be as a human being. And you're clearly a, a modest person as well. And I just, I wonder well, how that is for you on a personal level. Well, if you were to ask any of my detractors, and there are many, <laughs> they would call me a narcissist, mm. arrogant, up myself, and so on and so forth. So it's very nice to be, to be here, you know, listening to you. Just call, wait, there's still an hour. Exactly there's still an hour, mate. <laughs> um, look, um, ever since I can remember, um, I had a penchant for um, uncovering for myself how power works, mm. how you know, exorbitant social power works. Not so much electricity power, but you know, political power. The power to make other people do things that are against their interests on your behalf. Mm. Right? That always fascinated me. It was like a whodunit. It was a, the greatest crime that humanity has ever managed to accomplish. And therefore, I wanted to unpack it, you know, to analyze it, to, to, to understand it myself. And because I hated capitalism and I didn't want to be involved in the labor market, mm. I decided when I was studying here in Britain that I was going to become an academic. Not because I liked academia, but because it was a way out of the labor market. Because you're getting, essentially, back then, not anymore. Back then, you got paid to read write, research, and teach, right? Yeah. Now that's effectively an escape from capitalism. And as a result of that, whatever I uncovered in this process of um, decloaking and unfrocking power, I was trying to explain to my students. Mm -hmm. And 
the one thing I didn't want to do was to bore them the way that my professors bored me, or most of them. So, you know, I got a lot of pleasure out of um, putting forward an analysis of power to students, and I did this for decades. Mm -hmm. And I did it in many countries, I did it here in the UK, I did it in Australia, I did it in the United States, I did, and then I did it in, in uh, my native Greece. And then, at some point, I think it was around 2003, 2004, I started realizing that, or feeling, sensing, that a tsunami was coming. A new, gigantic capitalist crisis, not one of those regular ups and downs, because, you know, when I moved here to Britain in 1978, that was a winter of discontent that had just started. That was a crisis of capitalism, but it wasn't the big one, mm. right? like big earthquake that demolishes everything. That happened in 1929, and it happened again in 2008. Around 2003, I started sensing that a big one is coming. So I started speaking out beyond the amphitheater, the lecture hall of the university. Uh, so that's the beginning of the answer to your question. Yes, it is the beginning to answer the question. And it's striking that I tried to get you on the personal and you're already talking macro events about the Great Depression and the Great Recession, but I tried nonetheless. Um, <laughs> so let's stick with power actually for a second. And I know we covered this uh, in our last interview on techno-feudalism and I would encourage viewers to go and watch that as well um, because it's a, it's a fascinating conversation. But just for the sake of those who are here now, in modern Britain, you ask the Prime Minister, you know, who has power, and he'll say that he thought it was him until he got into office, and then he pulls a lever and nothing happens, and he, does, he can't quite understand why, and that maybe it's the officials and the civil servants, and they'll tell you, actually, no, it's the, it's the politicians, because they're the ones with democratic legitimacy and a mandate to rule and to govern. You ask an MP, and they'll say, no, I have no power, I get whipped by the, by the whips, um, I'm lobby fodder, I vote how I'm told, I have no power. It's the media, the media have the power. You see where I'm going, it's a cycle. It's and nobody's responsible. Nobody's, yeah, <laughs> crucially, nobody's responsible. And the sort of the textbook answer is, well, Parliament is sovereign. You know, the institution itself is sovereign and it derives its sovereignty from its, you know, cyclical elections every four years. And as a result, it's actually the British people that are sovereign. Go to a market town, go to a coastal village, ask those people if they think they have power. They'll tell you, I have no power. I feel out of control in mm -hmm. my life. So where is power in modern Britain? Where can we look to to find it? Well, primarily, of course, it rests in the hands of those who own everything. So, you know, if you own huge um, tracts of land or, um, you know, the majority of shares in uh, one of those hedge funds that own everything else, then you have the power. If you're a banker, you have a lot of power, especially if you're bankrupt. Because the more bankrupt you are as a banker, the more of a threat you are to society and the more likely it is that the Chancellor of the Exchequer will bail you out um, sight unseen. I'll answer your question, however, in two doses. The first, again, on the macro-historical context, in a macro-historical context, if I may. The Please. first, Okay. So if you think about it, before the 18th century, before capitalism emerged to replace feudalism, under feudalism, power was uh, homogeneous. It was one thing, there was a unity. So if you were the king, you were rich, and you had military power, and you had political power, and you had all the power you wanted, right? You could take people's heads, uh, and you were only feared 
the usurpers who would behead you and take your place. But mm. power was unified. It changed hands, but it was one sphere, one realm. With the beginnings of the great transformation from feudalism to capitalism, suddenly you have a schism, that you have a split of that unitary power into two realms, the political realm and the economic realm. So you had merchants in Southampton who had become stinking rich because of the expanding trade of wool that was being carried in their ships from Southampton to India uh, for spices, for silk and so on. Suddenly these people who were not allowed anywhere near Buckingham Palace or the House of Lords, they were you know, just filthy merchants as far as the aristocracy was concerned. But nevertheless, they had more money than the aristocracy. So you have this split between economic and political power. Mm. Then, after 1971 and the breakdown of what was the first post-war uh, financial system called the Bretton Woods, if you recall, you have the emancipation of the bankers from politics. So finance, financial power, splits from economic power. So now you have three realms. You have the political realm, you have the economic realm, industry, manufacturing, and then you have the bankers, the financial mm -hmm. realm. And power goes from the political sphere to the economic sphere, finally to the financial sphere. Every time it migrates, the political sphere becomes less powerful. And essentially, the prime minister or the president of the United States is right to say that he has, usually he, not always he, um, less power today than their predecessors had 20, 30 years ago. So that is correct. However, remember the lockdown? Mm. Remember the pandemic? Suddenly we realized that states, governments, parliaments have enormous power. They can actually lock us down mm. and into our homes. So, Mr. Sunak, I understand that generally, yeah, it is true that you have less power than Winston Churchill had, quite less power than Lloyd George had. But, mate, you have power to do incredible things, but you are not using it because the reason you are there is because you are representing the interest of capitalists who have put you there so as not to do anything, except what they instruct you to do in terms of tax cuts, in terms of all the, the props that they need uh, from Parliament in order to enhance their capacity to extract value from others. It's actually the exact purpose. The, the purpose is to be powerless. Yeah. It is to do nothing. Yes, you see, I remember I was having a conversation with a British politician whose name is not going to be mentioned here. You sure? Sure, because, you know, I keep confidences. But Naturally. Uh, Tory minister mm. at the time. And he was, yeah, he was saying, Yannis, how can you possibly claim that I don't truly believe that which I'm saying? But, you know, it, you know austerity works and the, the free markets are always better than the state. I said, well, mate, I have no doubt that you believe in what you're saying. But if you didn't believe what you were saying, they wouldn't actually let you be minister. Can we uh, have a definition of terms before we progress to the next part of the interview? Mm -hmm. um, I want us to talk about financialization. Mm -hmm. So, for someone who doesn't know what that term is, what does financialization mean? It's just gambling. Let me give you a very simple example of financialization, right? Please. Because it's not just buying shares. That has been happening now for 500 years. This is nothing new, you know, buying and selling shares. It's a kind of gamble to buy and sell shares, but 
that's not financialization. I'll tell you what financialization is. Sometime, decades ago, financiers developed um, contracts that actually made some sense. So if you're a farmer and you face uncertainty, mm. you, you may have a very bad crop, um, it's good to have an insurance company that provides you with an insurance contract that essentially uh, allows you to cut your losses if things are not good. So this is a futures contract. Essentially, you buy the right to sell your produce at a certain minimum price so that if next year the price falls below, at least you get that. Mm. And it's like an insurance company. It's like, you know, you, get, you have an insurance for your car. If there's an accident, you get some money back. You don't get everything. There's an excess, right? But you get something. Mm -hmm. So you hedge against bad things happening. So these, these insurance contracts became then trans transformed themselves into options to sell shares. So in, moving away from agriculture, uh, imagine you are a financier and you purchase uh, a million pounds worth of you know, uh, British Aerospace shares, right? Uh, you can hedge, you can reduce your risk by saying, okay, I just spent a, a million quid on these shares, but I will buy a contract that essentially allows me next year, if I want to get rid of them, say the share price crashes, that I can sell them for at least 800,000. Mm. So far, so good. But then they thought, okay, well, if we are selling people, finances, an option to sell, why don't we sell them an option to buy? Aha, uh -huh, that becomes more interesting and more lethal. Mm. Because suddenly you, you can pay money that allows you not to sell, but to buy in the future shares that you have not purchased today, right, mm -hmm. at a given price. So effectively you are betting that the price will go up. And as long as stock exchanges go up, because governments privatize everything and they allow, you know, and, and, and they allow the bankers to lend money to people to buy more shares and so on. Yeah, that's a guarantee. That's what happened with Thatcher after mm. 1981, 1982, the, the big bang in the city of London. Essentially, you are guaranteeing that the stock exchange will go up and then you're giving people the, a reason to keep buying options to buy. And then you think, why am I buying shares at all? I'll just buy options to buy. But then, because if you buy only, you know, if you have a million, instead of buying a million, shares worth of British Aerospace shares, you buy 10 chunks of these options to buy, no shares, you buy, you place 10 bets that the price will go up. If the price goes up, then you have turbocharged your winnings compared to what you would have gotten had you bought the shares. Mm. But yeah, so that's financialization. Now, people ask me, now, how come Barclays Bank went bankrupt in 2008, or Lloyds Bank, or, um, the Royal Bank of Scotland, mm. which, which became more bankrupt than the whole of the planet Earth could possibly be. The answer is because if you keep borrowing money from American banks to buy these options to buy, and you, you effectively you have turbocharged both your prospective winnings and your prospective losses. Mm. So as long as the going was good, RBS was doing, it was the biggest company in the world. And then one day, the stock exchange started going down because of Lehman Brothers. Uh, all the loans were called in, the options to buy blew up, and then you are still paying for the bailout of the Royal Bank of Scotland. That's financialization. Mm -hmm. It's a massive gambling extravaganza where all the profits go to the financiers and all the losses go to you.
and to your generation and to your children's generation and so on. The rewards are privatised, the risk is socialised. Yeah. To focus on the City of London and those banks for a moment then, you've previously described the City of London as, you know, a drag on the UK economy. A lot of people, and for the reasons also that you've just outlined, right, it can be a ginormous risk, a millstone around the neck, an albatross, whatever you want to call it. I don't necessarily think this, but I will argue the counter view, right, which is that the City of London essentially drives the Exchequer. You know, it's something like 10% of the tax take in Britain. And that, yes, whilst it might be risky, this financialisation can pose risks to our economy and it can jeopardise all sorts of things, potentially even topple government. Nonetheless, all of that money, some of that money that gets made there, taxes are collected on it. And as a result, it might not be a part of the economy we necessarily desire, but it is unfortunately one which we now necessarily need in order to fund the, the, uh, the Exchequer. Remember Cuba before Castro? I don't, but I'm aware of, I'm aware of it. Not do I, but I remember <laughs> the, the theory of it or the imagery yeah. of it. Well, its economy was based on the Mafia. You could even say that you know, 50% of the Cuban economy before Castro was the Mafia. That's not a good reason for keeping the Mafia. This is exactly the same thing with the city of London. Mm. Now, why is the city of London um, so, such a significant chunk of British GDP? Because Margaret Thatcher destroyed British industry. So if you destroy the factories, if you close them all down, and you leave the city of London, right, mm. and you keep giving the city of London uh, public assets to play with, and though it gets bigger, of course it's going to become a significant percentage of, you know, portion of the British economy. So, you know, it's like a mafia, which is destroying the fiber of the Britain's uh, social economy. Uh, it is parasitic on it, and it grows more and more. That is an argument for treating it like a cancer that needs chemotherapy to be excised or radiation or surgery or something, mm. right? It's not an argument for keep, to keep feeding it. And because I, you know, I, I cut my teeth as an economist and as a student just when Thatcher came in, in this country. I, I, I'm old enough to remember how it all worked. Why did the city become so significant? Okay, before Thatcher, it was because the city had created a way of bypassing all the rules and regulations of the Bretton Woods system. Essentially, it was a little mafia in the making that allowed bankers to violate the rules of their own governments, uh, not just in Britain, in the United States, in Germany, in France, through various jurisdictions in the Cayman Islands, and so on and so forth. Mm. But then Thatcher comes in and boosts the city of London. That's why they loved her so much. First thing she did was to sell off council houses. Now, why was this significant for the city of London? Well, because to begin with, it essentially told you know, working class people, here's a house, the one you're living in, which you do not own, it belongs to the local council. Um, in the market, if this was to be sold off as a private home, it would fetch 30,000 quid, right? We'll sell it to you for 10. Essentially, we are gifting you 20,000. Now, of course, you don't have 10. So go to the bankers to get it, right? That's first number one. That's financialization's commencement in this country. You appropriate the working class because suddenly they love you because you give them 20,000. They don't understand that you know, your kids will not have anywhere to live because once that house gets sold and all house prices go up, 
the next generation of working class Britons will have nowhere to live, as is the case today. Uh, and the next thing she did was to say, okay, I'll give you something more to the British working class, you know, to the blue-red wall and so on. What I'm going to give you is uh, an opportunity to make some money from privatization of British gas, of British airways, and so on and so forth. I remember the amazing campaign by Saatchi and Saatchi to sell, sell off British gas. Tell Sid was the big advertisement. Uh, Sid, of course, was a working class person. And what the message to Sid was is this. Um, look, we are going to take British gas, we're going to chop up its value in little bits called shares. And we will, uh, because we are uh, Democrats and we want to push for a share owner's democracy, we're going to limit the amount of shares that anyone can buy. So we're not going to give British gas to some conglomerate. We're going to give it to you, Sid. So can you raise 2,000 pounds? Uh, because if you do, then we'll give you a share of you know, a portion of British gas. They made sure that the shares were undervalued, undervalued just like the, the, the council houses were undervalued. So it was, you know, Standard and Poor's and Aston Young and Price Waterhouse and all. they told them that look, the, 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 the real value of this bunch of shares is probably around four thousand. We'll sell them for two. So what Sid does is goes goes to Lloyd's Bank, to Barclays Bank, and what they do is they take a loan. Two thousand, because they know that the next morning they can sell it for four thousand. So the banker gives the money to them. If essentially, without asking for any collateral, for anything, they know that they will be able to take it. And they did take their money back. But suddenly, you had a massive boost of share sales and the co-opting of a large chunk of British society into the stock exchange. Of course, after that, they were jettisoned because then the, the sharks come along and buy all the shares and suddenly British gas belongs to a conglomerate within a week. Mm. This is financialization. So it takes politics, and it takes cynicism on behalf of parliaments that allow this to happen and legislate so that while industry is being depleted and shut down, the, wealth's, the wealth of the nation is bestowed upon the city of London. And then the city of London says, you can't touch me. Mm. I am the center of this nation's wealth. Kind of like a mafia. It is a mafia. It's exactly like the mafia in Cuba before Castro. What do you think? To what extent do you think that the sort of Thatcher's ghost still haunts, actually not just the Conservative Party, I think you could say the that... The whole of Europe. Yeah. Go on. Well, look, um, last year in April, there was um, a dreadful train accident in Greece, in Thessaly. 57 young people died on their way to university. Uh, why did that happen? Because of the privatization of our railways. What model did they follow? Thatcher's model. And what was Thatcher's model? The first thing she did was um, to denounce state corporations as inefficient, as monopolistic, as awful, terrible, you know, British Rail, British Gas, British Electricity. By the way, they work much better than they do today. Or the waterboard, my mm -hmm. goodness, you know, much better. I mean, it was pretty, Britain was a pretty miserable place when I lived here, but it was you know, all these corporations worked better than they do today. You, you, you only need to take the train to go to Brighton or to go to Manchester to realize that. Mm. Okay, so she 
presented them as uh, ancient and archaic and arthritic in need of modernization. What was the modernization? You break up the network. You create one company that owns the tracks and, another, and then other companies that own the, uh, the, the rolling stock and so on. And remember what happened immediately after that. Uh, Kicks cross. Mm. You had uh, the, the massive uh, railway accident because it's, you know, if you have an, one company owning the tracks and another owning the rolling stock, it's a little bit like you and me driving a car together, you steering and me using, you know, uh, having the throttle controls and the brake controls. We are going to crash. I think we do quite a good job. I understand the analogy you're making. Together we are not going to do a good job. Do you reckon? The, the, the chances of an accident are significantly boosted. They are. Uh, so, you know, electricity markets. Mm. Where do they, we should never have an electricity market. The notion of an electricity market is a crime against logic. Because it can never be competitive. Never. Why? Because you know, in the studio, in your home, there's one electric wire that comes out. Okay? And you take that electricity. If you had the possibility of having 50 electric wires, imagine 50 different networks of wiring through the city of mm -hmm. London, right? Uh, and you could say, oh, this is cheaper today, I'll take that one. Then you, maybe you would have a market. Mm. But with electricity, you can't. So there's one wire coming out, and the government has to simulate a market, which takes the form of some kind of auction house when different private companies that produce or carry electricity or sell electricity, supposedly compete with. They don't compete. It's a cartel. Mm. It's like OPEC. You know, they, 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 they cooperate fully in order to skin you. So how did we get electricity markets across Europe now? I mean, the reason why we have this massive cost of living crisis, part of it, is because we have electricity markets. If you look at their profit rates in Britain, in Germany, in Greece, in Austria, in Italy, during this crisis, after the war in Ukraine in particular, right, their profits are going up. Why should their profits be going up? The answer cannot be that natural gas has become more expensive. That's a cost. I understand price going up in sync with the cost. Mm. But when they tell me, and they celebrate this in the stock exchange, that profit rates are going up, it means that prices are going up faster than the costs, by definition, which means they're a cartel. That's, that's, that's why competition doesn't work. Where does this disaster come from? Margaret Thatcher. But wasn't she brilliant in the way that she managed to you know, wipe the floor clean with the Labour Party, with the Liberal Party, with her own wets, and push all this in. And not only push this in, but cause an infection in the European Union. Because every cynical and oligarchic policies introduced in this country is now in Greece, in Italy, in Portugal. The extraordinary thing for me in previous global crises, and I think World War II is probably a pretty good example. Um, I've interviewed Mick Lynch about this and he talked about, you know, the sort of the people that were seen to be profiteering work during rationing, right? Going around pubs, selling black market goods to make, to make a profit were called spivs. They were sort of socially, you know, they were par pariahs ostracized from society. Now, a corporation skins the public, as you've just said, right? Mm. Colossal profits, billions in profit. And there seems to be apathy. Uh, a, there isn't a, a popular revolt, a mass protest movement. No one is marching to the gates of Centrica or, you know, take your pick, name the company, demanding that they get their money back. 
Why do you think that is? Is there a, it's almost, you know, to sort of, um, to quote Mark, to do a bad job of quoting Mark Fisher, the sort of, the lack of an ability to imagine a, an alternative political reality, right? That this is just the capitalist system we happen to live in and we have to, we have to suffer the consequences. May I be a bit damning about the political party? By all means. It's the fault of the Labour Party in this country. It's the fault of the, of the centre-left across Europe. Mm. It's the fault of the Democrats in the United States. When you have a social democratic party, whether it is the SPD in Germany or the Labour Party here, which uh, trades in a vision of a just society, and when they come to power, they turbocharge every oligarchic policy that they've inherited from the Tories. This causes two social phenomena. One is people become apathetic and stay at home mm. and they don't want to know about politics or they become fascists. Not fascist in the sense of, you know, Mussolini's uniforms and so on, yeah, but becomes xenophobic, they, be, they become cynical, um, you know, they, 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 they start believing that Brexit is going to allow them to take back on control when it, all it allowed was, you know, for um, Mr. Johnson to become Prime Minister. It is the fault of the left. And the, I include myself in this. It is our fault. We must blame no one except ourselves. Think of the United States in 2008. You know, Barack Obama was elected with a mandate to get rid of the Wall Street bankers and you know, bail out the banks because you can't let them fail. People's savings are in there, but we will get rid of the bankers. That was the, the, the cry call, which is what FDR, you know, Roosevelt had actually done in 1933. Roosevelt had liquidated the bankers, not the banks, the bankers. And that's why the bankers really hated him. What does Obama do? He takes two gentlemen, Tim Geithner and Larry Summers, who were a Clinton's duo in the, in the finance ministry, in the US Treasury Department. The two men who had worked for Wall Street to unshackle the bankers and to let them go crazy to the extent that it brought about the 2008 financial collapse. He takes these two men and gives them a mandate. Save the bankers. And they print together 12 trillion American dollars to save the bankers. Do you know what the result of this is? This is a rhetorical question. Donald Trump. That, I mean, it's, it's natural. I understand the blue-collar workers that Hillary Clinton deplorably called the deplorables. Yeah. Yeah? When they say, look, we tried you. I mean, the idea that, it, it, that Trump was elected on the wave of racism. That's rubbish. Black people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012, 2008 and 2012, they voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why he got elected. There aren't enough racists and fascists in, 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 in the United States to elect the president, even with a stupid electoral college system that they have. Mm. So, you know, in, in my country, when we presented, when I say we, I mean Syriza, the coalition of the radical left party um, to which I belonged and you know, with which I was elected to parliament in 2015 and became finance minister. We offered the people, after they had tried all different alternatives, we offered, as you put it, 
um, a meaningful, coherent, alternative plan of what needed to be done. And our party went from 4% to 36%, and we formed the government. And in the first five months, we stuck to our guns. We were true to the spirit of the manifesto that had gotten the mandate from the people. And when we crashed with the most powerful forces in the universe, like the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, the, you know, Wall Street, the City of London, Frankfurt, uh, the whole cabal of powerful people, and finances in particular, we held a referendum. And the question was, do you want us to keep fighting or not? Should we give in? Yes or no? And the answer was no. 62%. It had gone, we had gone from 4 to 36 to 62, right? And what, that, what happened that night? My comrade and prime minister at the time decided to surrender. Effectively to overthrow the people. The people had given him a mandate of sea. What was the, the mathematically inevitable outcome of that? The destruction of the left. Mm. The people that don't, don't, they don't even want to look at me. I didn't betray them because I resigned that night. But you know what? They don't care. They say, you lot gave us hope. And then you betrayed it. And I don't care whether you, know, whether you signed or you didn't sign. So now what, what we have? We have uh, fascists in parliament. We have an ultra-right-wing conservative party that is in cahoots with the fascists in government. And we have the left that is, um, you know, we are reeling now. And we'll be, you know, sort of languishing in this magma of discontent and failure for another 10 years at least. Mm. And I, th I think that's what's most worrying to me about the Labour Party and the prospect of a Keir Starmer government, right? Is because a Keir Starmer government will, will be a government of the Liberal Centre. I mean, I mean that deliberately, a centrist. Are you sure? Well, it's hard to know what his type of government he's going to have because... I think he's probably going to veer towards the ultra-right very soon. Because, I mean, I think the answer is... Looking at the authoritarianism of the Labour Party, the Labour Party has never had this degree of authoritarianism in its midst. You know, even under Tony Blair, you know, there, there were people like Tony Benn mm. and Jeremy Corbyn. They were, they were never thrown, thrown out. Yeah, there was, of course, a dominant cast of uh, right-wingers in the Labour Party. Mm. But it was a broad church. Now it's not. Now, there was this mayor in North England, I don't remember his name, who attended, who attended a screening of Ken Loach's fantastic movie. Jamie Driscoll. And he was still thrown out. Yeah. That's fascism. Okay. And of course you have Rachel Reeves. Of, uh, yeah, a product of the financial sector, yeah. You have Rachel Reeves, who comes out, I was listening to BBC Radio 4's Today program the, you know, last week, mm. and she came out to explain the U-turn on the green investment program of 28 billion. billion, which is, by the way, a drop in the ocean, but nevertheless. Okay, look, we can discuss whether it was a good program, should be dropped or not. I don't care why she dropped it, even that she dropped it. You know what really irks me? The reason she gave. She said uh, the Tories have maxed out the credit card of the state. George Osborne must have been laughing his head off because this is the, f the stupid toxic lie that he was peddling, mm. that the state's budget operates like a credit card and if you are in the red, you have to cut down. That, that was the whole of the Australian logic. Rachel Reeves has adopted this magnificent toxic lie of austerity before moving to 10, 10, 11 Downing Street. Mm -hmm. So what is she going to do when she moves in there? 
I mean, my goodness, spare us of that, this label party, whoever you are, you know, who, nature, society, God, whoever. Yeah. The rhetoric is strikingly similar, actually, to that employed by the Conservatives in advance of the 2010 election, right? That essentially, you have failed to, to fix the roof while the sun was shining. We are going to have to come in and fix the economic mess that you have created. Huh. And, and they're, the they're doing exactly the same. Yeah, and that's, what, that's what the Labour Party's copying, right? They're, yeah. they're copying that political rhetoric at the moment. But they're not even doing that. I prefer the Tory rhetoric. Do you? Firstly, because they are class conscious. You know, they are loyal to their social class. Who is Labour loyal to? They are trying to, to, what, to tell the British bourgeoisie and aristocracy, don't trust the Tories, trust us? I think so, yeah. Well, the concern, you, know, the, 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 you know, these old men in the clubs of London, you know, look at them and laugh at them. They may consider them useful idiots and quite useful, but they will never trust them. Uh, they may, you know, they may, you know, like, like Tony Blair's government, it was excellent, splendid for con conglomerates and corporations and so on. For Rupert, for Rupert Murdoch, who even supported Tony Blair, he may even support Keir Starmer tomorrow. But Rupert Murdoch thinks of them as weasels. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they can't take them seriously because nobody li likes uh, a traitor, a traitor of the class that they supposedly represent. No one likes a traitor, especially the one who benefits from the traitor. So Keir Starmer wins that election. Let's say, I don't know, a landslide. Maybe it's like 97, whatever it's like. But nonetheless, he has a significant majority in Parliament. Mm. And I'm going to expect and predict that his political answers will not rise to the scale of the challenge, not least because they are essentially the neoliberal economic settlement that we've had in this country for the last 30 years. So how on earth can you rise to the challenges that have been delivered by the same system by turning back to that system? Nonetheless, the electorate says, OK, we gave you a chance. You have failed. We placed our hope in you. You've let us down. What's the most likely political vehicle they will be able to turn to instead? Let's assume it's the Conservative Party that has gone through its ideological battle for its ideological soul, has ended up in the grip of Suella Braverman, Kemi Badenoch, yes. some kind of populist yes. right-wing yes. politician. And we could end up with the extraordinary scenario of going from, let's say, a 200-seat Labour majority in the space of one parliament to a resurgent populist right. I think Keir Starmer has to be incredibly conscious of that fact and that risk. And I don't I, know if he I, is. I think that you're being too kind to Keir Starmer. I simply don't think there is much happening between his ears except uh, a burning ambition to move into 10 Downing Street. Power. I have seen nothing ever coming from him which um, can be imagined as empirical evidence that there is any analytical thinking going on in his, brain, in his mind. And if it is, it's very well hidden. <laughs> but you know what, I think what you just said, which is completely correct, answers the question you put to me earlier about you know, how is it that we are in a constant crisis of the capitalist economic order, and yet it's only the right that succeeds. Well, when the left is represented by somebody like Keir Starmer, what else do you expect? Mm. Uh, especially when you have people like Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer that are t struggling to present themselves as most, more royalist than the king because they need to go the extra mile in order to prove to the establishment that they are not a threat to them. So in a sense, they are going to be more right-wing than the Tories because the Tories don't need to prove to the establishment that they are Tories. So they can 
yeah, give a little bit more money to the NHS um, without being taken to task by the murdered press. Right? Mm. I very much fear that the Keir Starmer Labour government, you see, many people say to me, come on, Yanis, but Labour will be better than the Tories. No, not necessarily. When it comes to Ukraine, the never ending war of Ukraine, I mean, Keir Starmer, um, more so than Sunak, seems to believe that um, we have to, as the West, we have to keep going until we take Moscow. Without our soldiers fighting, Zelensky's soldiers taking Moscow, that means a never-ending war. That's Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer has been complicit in the genocide in Gaza from day one to this very moment when you know, that we're you know, chatting. Mm. Uh, so why would the Tory government be worse? A fair question, I think. Before we, um, and you know what? I prefer to have bastards in power who claim to be bastards representing the aristocracy than bastards in power who claim to be representing the working class. And in denial of their status as bastards. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's the Politics Show cast. Before he... Uh... Before we uh, draw this to a close, I'd like to talk for, a, for a, a few questions, if we may, about the crisis um, in Gaza that you just mentioned. Uh, the situation in Rafah is worsening. More than a million people, displaced people there now. Um, the shelling has started. The bombardment has started. How conscious should we be in the West of the decision that came out of The Hague that there is the potential for a genocide being caused in Gaza at this moment in time? Um, and do you think that... Israel's current actions, specifically what's happening in Rafa right now, um, constitute, well, I mean, you did just use the phrase, but I'd like you to expand on it, uh, a genocide. The genocide started in 1948. It's simply becoming uh, more lethal, more bloodthirsty, uh, less bearable than it ever was. The complicity of the West is um, mind-numbing and indisputable. Here you have an apartheid state. It is clearly an apartheid state. Anybody who's been to the West Bank knows it's an apartheid state. They've built walls and they've built roads exclusively for the use of the illegal settlers uh, that the local population cannot use. That's apartheid. Mm. So you have an apartheid state which um, has always tried to merge the Zionist ideology the Zionist narrative with the facts on the ground. The Zionist narrative from the 1910s was 
a land without a people for a people without a land. In other words, terra nullius is what the British did in Australia. They said, you know, Captain Cook arrives and declares that Australia to be empty of people. Mm. So the Aborigines are not people, so kill them. Right. Genocide. It's the first step. Terra nullius is the first step towards genocide. So that's the Zionist project. A land without a people for a people without a land. Now, of course, there were people there. <laughs> there were millions of people there. There were. So now the IDF is in the process of ensuring that the Zionist um, allegory, slogan, eh, becomes a fact on the ground. They're getting rid of them. Mm. The whole point is to expel them, to kill them, to, to drive them away. They do not want to kill them all. I mean, they, they want to kill as many as is necessary to convince the rest to leave. Uh, you can see that in the West Bank, because people say to me, but Yanis, how can you possibly support Hamas? I am not supporting Hamas. Netanyahu supported Hamas. Likud and Netanyahu were in the business of diminishing the authority of the PLO, mm. and they have been for decades supporting Hamas, financially, uh, politically, militarily, until they completely destroyed the um, the capacity of the, of the PLO, of the Palestinian Authority, to appeal to the Palestinian people, and only Hamas is left to represent them. And in any case, let's say that we press a button and Hamas disappear. Mm. They just disappear. They, they, you know, they're all convinced. They're brainwashed by some wonderful piece of artificial intelligence delivered by drones you know, to, to give up, to surrender. What happens in West Bank? Hamas are not there. The ethnic cleansing, the genocide is continuing there. Mm. And of course, you can see that they just want the land, not to, not to mention the natural gas deposits, which are off Gaza. So this is what's happening. The West, especially those who claim to care about human rights, we must accept that we have now proven beyond dispute that we never cared as countries, as polities, as establishments, as media, about human rights. We only cared about our human rights and the human rights of our friends, of our bastards, right? If you are not one of us, you don't have human rights. You can be bombed, you ne you're never killed. Even if we kill you, you die. Mm. Um, whenever they say, hang on, what's happening? They are terrorists, right? So. Never before has the West's image around the world been so terrible. What is happening is, at once, in the West, opinion, public opinion, conventional wisdom is solidifying its support for Israel's genocide, but the rest of the world is becoming more and more disillusioned with the so-called principles or ethical um, dimension of the Western uh, polity, of the Western way of thinking. You mentioned drones there, and I would like to, if we have time, to cover the intersection of sort of techno-feudalism and this conflict. But can we just hone in for a second on the sort of the shifting of Israel's stated war aims? Because initially we were told it's the destruction of Hamas, right? Which poses its own questions because does that mean the military infrastructure? Does that mean the nurses that are employed in the Hamas-run health ministry, for example. But that was the initial state of aim. And gradually the rhetoric has changed to security control in Gaza. The, the rhetoric is shifting. And I wonder, first of all, what you believe the actual war aim is 
for Israel? And secondly, whether you think that aim is achievable? The original war aim has always been to take over the land from the river to the sea as part of a greater Israel, to expel half of the Palestinians and to keep the other half as bonded slaves. That was it. You know, the original apartheid idea of the white supremacist, the Boers in Af South Africa. That's why we call it an apartheid state. That was always the case. Up until the 7th of October, that plan was working magnificently because you and I were not even discussing Palestine, at least not to the extent that we are. Mm. Especially public opinion worldwide had accepted that it was over, over that Israel had won, that um, you know, the Palestinians in Gaza were fading. 60% of children before the 7th of October were malnourished. So the embargo was effectively killing them softly, slowly. And it was just a matter of time before, you know, the people living there would want to get out and the, the land would be cleared and it would be settled, settlers and so on. Uh, while in the West Bank, you had uh, something like 200,000 settlers 10, 15 years ago, now you have 800, 900,000. So they keep settling, they go straight from Boston or Brooklyn or from, yeah, they go straight to a house uh, of a Palestinian that has been thrown out of his home illegally in occupied land. So that was the aim. On the 7th, 7th of October, Hamas's actions shook the military establishment, the intelligence establishment in Israel, because they realized that they had not contained them to the extent that they had hoped they would. And, but that was a magnificent opportunity for them, essentially to kill lots of Palestinians and to use that setback in their intelligence community uh, as uh, an opportunity for speeding up the process of genocide. That's what it is. And as far as Netanyahu is concerned, his war aim is that the war doesn't end. An endless war, because he knows that the moment it ends, he loses the prime ministership. Mm. And you have Biden, Schultz, Macron, uh, Rishi Sunak supporting this war criminal. I'm glad Therefore, you... they are war criminals themselves. I'm glad you mentioned the international leaders in connection to this, because I wanted to get your thoughts on how realistic international pressure is in possibly bringing about an end to this conflict, whether that's... I don't see the international pressure. Where is it? Well, that's what I'm going to ask you. Where is it? You know, Mr. Borrell, the ridiculous supposed foreign minister of the European Union, the High Commissioner for Foreign Affairs, gave a speech for the first time which was critical of Israel. And he said um, that, they, that they've gone too far. They've gone too far in Gaza, right? And how can they kill these people? They are sending them the weapons, the bombs that are being dropped on Rafa as we speak. How dare he, how dare you, Mr. Borrell, ask such a question? You are arming the hands that are killing the Palestinians and you have the audacity to question why is it that they are continuing to do it. You're giving them every reason to be doing it. You know, President Biden came the other day out and said something similar that they've, they've overdone it. If he orders today that the American army ceases to support through the satellite system, through delivery of armaments, mm. spare parts for their planes, and of course these gigantic bombs that are being delivered daily to Israel 
by the American military, the war will end tomorrow. So if it was applied, mm. international pressure could bring about an end to this conflict? Yesterday. We have ended. We are in the West responsible for the maiming and the killing of the children of Gaza today. We are responsible for it. A really sombering place um, to finish this conversation. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. Um, we started the conversation talking about the documentary, not made by you, but certainly it features you in, in some parts. In all parts, but it's the artistic... When you watch a movie, mm. it's the director's artistic creation. It's not the actor's. Absolutely. I was just the talking head in there. Of course. And um, where can people find the documentary should they wish to see it? You can see now the link. Go for it. It's called In the Eye of the Storm. Follow it. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.